Let's take our Bibles, open it to Ephesians chapter 2. And today we're going to look at a section of Ephesians 2 that many of us didn't know was there. You know, all of us know verses 1 to 10. That's the beautiful, my salvation with God. I'm reconciled to the Father. But very few of us would know verse 11 to 22 that we are reconciled to one another. That, that this work of Christ that He has done didn't end when He forgave you of your sins. But that His plan was to make these two enemies one body. And that's where we'll see. Let's just read together the word of the Lord and from verse 11 up until verse 22. This is the reading of God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have saved us and reconciled us to God. But more than that, Lord, that you have saved us to belong to one another. You are building a church, you are creating this new humanity, this new poema, this new workmanship that you are busy building on earth. Thank you that you are busy in Porch, Lord, that you are busy building this church right here in Heritage Baptist, but also in other areas in Porch and across the world, Lord. You are building your church. And Father, I pray that you will help us to see this close connection between our salvation and our membership in a local church, Father. Please give us the grace we need to understand this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, if there's one thing that history and even our times of today can teach us about mankind or humanity, it is that we are hopelessly irreconcilable. The endless wars, the separation, the racism of our history, even today, proves this point. Think of the war in Ukraine and Russia. Think of the the endless conflict between Palestine and Israel that some would say is, is impossible to resolve between them. Our history of apartheid, now whatever your view is of that, shows that tendency to divide people by our people and your people by the color of our skin, right? This is something I've seen. I haven't been long in Clarksdorp. I've been there for four years now. But this is something I've noticed in Clarksdorp that when I speak to another white person, they would, when they talk about another white person doing bad things, they would like suddenly rub their skin. It's like, that's our people that do, that do that. As if white people aren't sinners. As if white people can't commit a crime, right? And so I just see that tendency to, to say, this is our people, right? But something that I learned as well was that racism is not just a white man problem. Mafolo, our brother... He's not racist, I promise you that. He's my best friend, <laughs> okay? But he told me the story of when he went to pick and pay one day to buy some eggs. He already had his tray of eggs, and then there was another black man working there telling him, listen, don't buy that. Here are cheaper eggs and larger eggs. Larger and for less, so take that. And Mafolo was looking at it, he was like, oh, thank you very much. I didn't notice that. He says, no problem, anything to help our people. Do you see what? It's the same thing. It's the same thing, right? Our people. And then he shared with Mafolo, like, he doesn't say this to the white people. He only says it to our people. Talking about the black people. 
So if there's one thing that seems impossible, beloved, it's this. It's this peaceful, loving, enduring peace between people of different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages. As easy as oil mixed with water, that's how easily we mix with one another. But here is where our text comes in. This is where our passage is about to go. It will show you that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And in fact, he's already doing this right here. Beloved, I'm so joyful to see Mafolo and Kutlanu here, right? It's wonderful. It's wonderful when we see people of different cultures and people of different race and different languages coming together, joyfully worshiping the same God, the same Savior, because there is only one gospel. There's not a white man's gospel and a black man's gospel. or a, There's only one gospel and there is only one God. And what is heaven going to look like, right? People from... Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And that's why Sundays is a foretaste of heaven. It is a foretaste because we see, although in a, in a veil darkly, right? Because we still have our sin in us. But we see that we get a foretaste of when we have fellowship together, when we sing together, when we listen to the same gospel and rejoice. That is heaven on earth. So who is our people? It's not the white people. It's not black people. For the Christian, it's the church. It's our brother's and sisters so when you hear that phrase our people in brackets your mind should be rushing to your sunday to see the people here that's what communion also makes so precious when we have communion we are celebrating that we are one body so we i was at a, a wedding recently where we had communion at the wedding and now, what, I think it was inappropriate, but me and my wife chose to partake. But you know what? When I was eating that bread and drinking the cup, you know, I was, yes, I was thinking about Christ's death on the cross. But do you know who I was thinking of as well? You. I was seeing your faces because you are my body. We are one body. We are one church. I was rushing towards my church family because those are the brothers and sisters I've covenanted myself together in baptism and say, these are my people, Right? Didn't Jesus say the same thing? He says, who is my brother? Who is my mother? Who is those who do the will of my father? Those are my family. They are my family members. So this is where our text is going. And the flow of thought here is beautiful. Um, remember, verses 1 to 10 shows us our vertical reconciliation. So it shows that we were dead, yet we were made alive. We are seated in the heavenly places and we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. That is our vertical uh, um, reconciliation. But from verse 11, like I said, this is the flip side of Christ's salvation that we don't talk about, we don't know, is our horizontal reconciliation. That Jesus did not just stop by forgiving us of our sins, but he desired a body, he desired a church, he desired a bride, Jew and Gentile. Right, So because if we just ended at verse 10 and said we are his workmanship, of course the Jews are his workmanship. We are his people. We have the circumcision. Not that person. Not the Gentiles. No ways. That's why the first word of verse 11 is therefore. When it says therefore, remember, he's talking to the Gentiles because he's connecting it to verse 10 to say, listen, who is this we? We are his workmanship. Who are the we? Who are the, the poema? Is it only the Jews? See, that's where he is going. He said, no, we, that is the Jew and the Gentile. And this flow of thought about the, the vertical res, uh, reconciliation and our horizontal res, reconciliation shows us a massive problem we have today when we think of salvation. Can you think of what it is? We only think of our salvation as something individually between me and Jesus. It's my relationship with him. It is my father in heaven. Although Jesus didn't talk, tell us to pray, to pray like that. What did he say? The first word of the, of the prayer is our. So you should first think of your church when you pray. Like, Lord, our father. Right? You are our God. You have saved us. So this is the thing. We are living in a Western 21st century individualistic mindset that takes everything as a thing between me and me. And you have no right to come in. You have no right to share this because this is, this is personal. But if you think like that, just be aware that that falls woefully short of what God did for you. That is only verse 1 to 10. That's only 
the one half of the coin of Ephesians 2. You're missing the rest of Ephesians 2, the, the passage that talks about our horizontal resurrect, uh, uh, reconciliation. So our stru the structure of verses 11 to 22 will fall into three parts, and we only look at two of them this afternoon, and Lord willing, the last one next week. What we were before Christ, but God brought peace through Christ, and what we are now becoming in Christ. So that is our outline. So our text begins with this reminder of what we were before Christ. What we were before Christ. Look at verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that you at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And then verse 12 again, he just uses that same command. Remember. By the way, in chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians, these are the only two commands. No command in the first three chapters, except what? Remember. Because the first three chapters is really about what God did for you. You did nothing. You were just dead. That's what you did. I, God raised you. God saved you. God reconciled you. But what you need to do is remember. So, yes, the commandments are going to come in chapters 4. Chapters 4 to 6, the commandments are going to be like a machine gun on you. Okay, So we're going to get there. But first, what does he do? He says, remember. He's really doing the same thing that he did in verses 1 to 3. Remember, he says, you were dead. You were slaves. And now he takes them back to that dark place again. So Rasi Erasmus, you will know, he was uh, one time the coach of um, the Springboks. And there was a documentary called Chasing the Sun. And there was one scene where he was talking to his team about, just before they were playing against Japan. And he was talking about, he was trying to psych them up, trying to psych them up for this rugby match. And he says, that they, I think there was like an electrical shortage at that time, so there was darkness. And he says, they don't know what dark is. It's pimping. You know, you've come from the township. You know what dark is. Take them to that dark place. And then he like moved through. He moved through the whole team. He says, he went through their history and where they come and where they grew up. Like we South Africans, we know suffering. We know how it feels to be in darkness, quite literally, right? <laughs> With Eskom as well. So the devil isn't the only prince of darkness, okay? Um, <laughs> that's for free. But, but that's, what, that's really what Paul is doing. So he's, Paul is saying, listen, he's taking us to that dark place, not to win a rugby match, but to win our hearts for God and for one another. He wants us to remember who we were so that we can love one another and realize what it really took. So when he says, remember who you were, he's saying, remember you were Gentiles. That's basically what he says. The uncircumcision. Now, that, that's not just a, a census title or something. that It was really, when, when, especially when it says, by the circumcision. Who, was the, who were the ones calling them uncircumcised? It wasn't the government. It was the Jews. The Jews said, those uncircumcised. You know what that means? It was a derogatory term. It was a description of... That their deep hatred for the Gentiles, the greatest division between people today and of all time is the division between Jew and Gentile. You cannot, racism doesn't get close to this. This is religious racism. This is, this is the deepest division you can get. The Jew looking at the Gentile and say, those uncircumcised. Remember, the circumcision was what? It was their badge that they belonged to God. They were God's people. Listen to Genesis 17 verse 14. It says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the Jews had the circumcision. That was their physical external symbol of the Abrahamic covenant. And the Gentiles didn't have that. The Jews hated the Gentiles so much, they believed the Gentiles were only created as fuel for the fires of hell. They were just wood. It's all they were. So do you see, this, this is what, what we have to remember who we were. This is, last time I checked, I think all of us are Gentiles. You can, if you're a Jew, please come speak to me afterwards. I'd love to meet you. <laughs> okay. But all of us are in this category. And now he continues to show five problems. Five problems we were before we came to Christ. Look at the first problem in verse, verse 12. It says, remember that you were at that time what? Separated from Christ. That's the first point. We were separated from Christ. Christ, remember, is just a Greek word or way of saying Messiah, the anointed one. The Jews had this expectant hope of their Christ, their Messiah. 
in the old covenant, the only way for you to have faith in the Messiah, in the future Messiah that would come, was to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised, become part of a Jew. That's the only way you could be saved in the old covenant, under the old covenant. But, but the Gentiles, remember, we were not part of that. We were separated from him. We were separated from, our, from the Messiah. We couldn't be saved. Here's the second problem. Look at verse 12. It says, we're separated from Christ, but then also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were alienated. The people of God in the Old Testament was a natural group, a national group, sorry, with specific land, a specific temple, a specific priesthood. That was the, the people of God. And to be part of that people again, and to, if you want to have his favor and his blessing, you had to go and become part of the Jews, the commonwealth of Israel. But again, the, Jew, the Gentiles were outside. They were not God's people. They were under God's judgment. The only way for you to, to become part of the people of God was to become a Jew. Third problem, verse 12, continues. It says, And strangers to the covenants of promise. Notice the plural, covenants, plural, and notice the singular, promise. There were multiple covenants, but there was a single promise. All the covenants was pointing towards the Messiah. Remember, the three major covenants were the Mosaic, the Abrahamic, and the Davidic covenant. Those three shared something in common. Jesus is going to come. The Messiah is coming, and he's going to save us. He is going to be our prophet, our priest, and our king and that's who we need again but the gentiles were what they were ignorant they did not even know of these covenants they had no no knowledge of that they they didn't have any true faith or any true hope and the next two descriptions are really the result of the first three look at the fourth problem in verse 12 it says having no hope isn't that a sad description of somebody we were those who had no hope. Again, since they, we as Gentiles, we don't, didn't know the Messiah and they didn't know what it means to be the people of God or about these covenants of promise, absolutely no hope. If you consider some of the religious beliefs of the Gentiles, if you consider some of those, those pagan gods, you just see this hopelessness. This, I mean, their gods were just man-made, selfish focusing on war, sex, or some other sins like these, gods were just like us, right? They were unholy gods made in our image instead of the holy God making us in His image. Even if they did have some, some belief in life after death, like Valhalla or whatever, it was a lie. It's a false hope. Even the little hope they had was false. They died and they went to hell. It's a false hope. So there was literally no light for them at the end of the tunnel. That's the state of Gentiles. Lastly, look at verse 12 again. It says, and without God in the world. Again, think of how scary that is to be in this world, this world, without God. Not only do they not have any future hope, they don't have any present comfort as well. No present comfort. When you become a Christian, you would know how this feels, right? When you become a Christian, you sometimes wonder, how could unbelievers do this? How can people without God live their lives? I mean, think of what we have. Think of what we enjoy as Christians. We have the precious promises of God. We have God's attributes. Just God's attributes are, are ma magnificent and a magnificent balm on our wounds. His omnipresence, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His love, His mercy, His fatherhood to us. That we can cast our burdens upon Him for He cares for us. That we are adopted. Right? Just, I, I, I should stop because we, we're not going to end this sermon if I continue. Right? But just the attributes of God and what He has done for us. Think of the prayers. Think of our fellowship. Think of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Think of all these blessings and they are yours in Christ. And unbelievers have nothing of that. Nothing. They have to live for the weekend. They have to live for the next pleasure. Because that's all they have. That's all they can enjoy. There's nothing beyond. When someone dies, what, what do they do? When, when someone's facing sickness or trials, how do they deal with the burden of their sin? 
We have, we have the curtain has been torn, beloved, for us. We can enter the holy of holies because of the blood of Christ. We can go to that throne of what? Grace, right? Isn't that, that's how we can unburden our sin and ask for forgiveness. But unbelievers, their guilty conscience crushes them until it hardens them. They cannot deal with it. They are without hope and without God. And get this. Again, remember what Paul is saying. He's saying to you, he's commanding you. Remember, that's you. That was you if you were in Christ. So can I ask you, can you remember your BC before Christ? Think of that. Think of the emptiness that was in you before you knew Christ. You just want one more thing. And if I can just get this, then I will be happy, right? And then you get it. And that's not enough. And now you need to move on to something new. You're always looking for the next thing. Remember how you coped with your sufferings, your trials? Perhaps you grabbed for the next, the closest idol of your comfort, the closest idol of pleasure, the closest idol that could just do something with the pain that you feel. You tried it, but as you tried to hug your idol, you found it piercing your heart with a knife. Do you remember living with your guilty conscience? Do you remember that? Having a guilty conscience under the burden of your sin? You know you are sinful, yet you, you, you're just going to, okay, from now on I'm going to just try better. I'm just going to be better and try harder. And then you fail again, you fail again, you fail again, and you know I'm not good enough. Secretly, right? Of course the devil will whisper in your ears and say, no, you are. You're special. Can you remember your way of thinking, your lifestyle, your expectations? Where would you be right now if you weren't a believer? Isn't that already grace that you're just sitting here listening to the Bible? How boring is that? Quote unquote. Not for the believer, right? For us, we, we love Christ. We love his word. But where would you be? Who would your friends be? Who would your company be if you were not as a Christian? Even if you are saved at the age of six, you had a before Christ. So I know there's some believers who were saved at a very young age. Praise God for that. May God save my children. I'm praying like that. Lord, save them at three. Like, okay, it's three already. Okay, save them at four. Right? But even if you have, if you, if you were saved as a young child, there was a time when you were in darkness. There was a time when you were dead. There was a time when you were separated from Christ and you were without God. But you might ask, Paul, why? Why should we remember this? Why so negative? Can't, shouldn't we try to forget? Why should we remember this? Right? I, I, want, I would be tempted to say the opposite. Hey, forget that. That's your past life. Paul says the opposite. He says, you have to remember this. Why? Why do you, why do you think we have to remember this? Because if you remember who you were, you appreciate who you are in Christ. And you appreciate your salvation. Isn't it so true, beloved, when we forget? Like the Israelites, when God saved them, and they just after the parting of the Red Sea, they forget and say, oh, this, it's because there's not enough graves in Egypt that we're going to die here. Forgetting, forgetting, forgetting. But remembering brings us back and say, Lord, thank you. You chose me. You sought me. Your gospel came to me. I wasn't seeking for you. You sought me. You plucked me out of the miry bog, out of the slough of the spond. You put my feet upon the rock of your love. Oh Lord, how great are you. How great is your love. How great is your grace. Paul wants us to remember that we might love God, but specifically here, Remember who you were that you might love one another. Isn't that interesting? Remember your past sinful life so that you can appreciate your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where he's going. That's his next point. And that's our second point as well. Remember who you were, but God brought peace through Christ. Now, when you hear the word peace here, don't think inner peace. Okay? Because let's be honest, that's the common... When you hear the word peace, you think of... That inner peace, the fruit of the Spirit peace. No. There's a different kind of peace in the Bible that's external to you. Peace between enemies. Peace with God means they reconciled with God. That we are no longer aliens or strangers to God. So here, think of peace as in 
There is now reconciliation. There's no enmity. And the first thing that in Christ brought peace in five ways to us. First way was Christ made peace through propitiation. Propitiation. Look at verse 13 and 16. It says, But now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Look at verse 16. He might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. Do you see? So by his blood through the cross. And that's what we mean by propitiation. That instrument of torture, that wooden cross, the most precious blood in the universe flowed for our sins. When we read the blood of Christ, remember, we not just think of his death, that is what it communicates, but also think of the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Remember, there is no, that whole Old Testament was a very bloody way to approach God. There was a lot of sacrifices to communicate this idea that it's only through death that we can be forgiven. Under the Old Covenant, remember, an, a pure, spotless animal were to be brought. The, the, the guilty had to put the, their hands upon the head of the innocent animal, confessing their sins over the animal. And then the animal had to be slaughtered. Why? It was the picture of transferal. My sins are now placed. The guilty has been placed upon the innocent. And the innocent dies that I might go free. But now Christ is called what? The Lamb of God. The whole sacrificial system was pointing to Christ. That one lamb, that one sacrifice was sufficient, was enough. As it were, on the cross, it was as if God the Father placed his hands on the head of his beloved. Confessing your sins, putting your sins upon him on that tree and then killing him. He did not spare his own son. That means he gave him up. He poured out his white hot wrath upon his son that, that you had to bear, that you had to feel forever. Instead, he put places it on his son. And his and son was willing. The son went willingly. He says, I lay down my life and I take it up. And then when he was nailed to that cross, that's where he absorbed the wrath of God. And the result, that's propitiation. So you might have wondered, what is this word propitiation means? It simply means this. It's a sacrifice or a gift to turn away wrath. A sacrifice or a gift to turn away wrath. When my wife is angry with me, like the first time I forgot her birthday, and never afterwards I forgot it. <clears throat> first year of marriage, forgot the birthday. I'm like, okay, I did that. And if you, I'm buying flowers for my wife, what am I doing? I'm propitiating her. She's upset I'm giving her a gift with the hope that it will avert or take away her, her wrath. The African tradition religion, sacrificing a pig because the ancestors are angry and so they are sacrificing the pig to propitiate the ancestors so that their sick child can be healed. That's propitiation. But what's the difference with, with, with biblical Christianity? Who brings the gift? Who gives the sacrifice? Is it us? No, for God so loved the world that he gave the sacrifice. He gave the blood. So, you see, we, if we were trying to give the sacrifice, we would be in hell forever. That's our portion. That's our lot. But God loved us. He propitiated his own anger. That's how amazing his love is. And now we will experience forever the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. Remember chapter 2 verse 7. That's the first thing. Christ propitiated the wrath of the Father to bring us near, to reconcile us. Here's the second thing, and it's that word that I just used. Christ reconciled us to the Father. Look at verse 16. It says, now notice the word both here. That, that's a very key word. It says, and might reconcile us both. Jew and Gentile to one God. Do you see? So by reconciling both, Jew and Gentile, to one God, that automatically does what for us? Reconcile us as well. 
But again, that idea of we were reconciled to God means we were his enemies. You only reconcile enemies. You only reconcile people that are not on speaking terms. And so when we are reconciled to God, it means we were not. We were children of wrath, but now we are adopted. We are his friends. We are in his family. That's reconciliation. Now we can come near. So for a Jew, coming near was a holy thing. You don't come near, you die. If you come too close, you die. The high priest once a year can go into the Holy of Holies. And even then, he, he often dies. Now we can come near to this holy God by the blood of his son. Right? And so instead of killing us, look at what he says at the end of verse 16. Instead of killing us, verse 16 says, thereby he killed the hostility. It's beautiful, right? We had to die. Instead, his son dies and our enmity dies. Now there's peace, true peace. Practically, this means we can now have access. Look at verse 18. It says, for through Christ, we both, again, you hear the word again? Both, 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 both. Don't miss that word. We have both access in one spirit to the Father. Notice the Trinity. Through the Son, in the Spirit, to the Father. This is a Trinitarian love we have. And that's what it means to be brought near to God. We are reconciled to Him. We can approach Him. But we can approach Him as Jew and Gentile. Third point. Jesus brought peace by abolishing the law. By abolishing the law. Look at verse 14. It says, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both, again the word both, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, so Paul's talking here about a, a wall that was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And some think, and we're not certain, but some think in the, the temple of that Herod built, there was literally a wall that did separate Jew and Gentile. And there was an inscription on the wall that read um, that the Gentiles are free to approach or cross the border, resulting in their death. Welcome to cross that line. You will die. So this enmity, so when you think of the enmity between Jew and Gentile, it was a violent enmity. They wouldn't hesitate to kill each other if they crossed the line too far. And so what does Paul say? If he's referring to that wall, he's saying, listen, that wall is broken down. That wall by Christ in his flesh has been broken down. That there are no more lines. We are now part of one body. But notice how he did it. This is, this is really a surprise, I think, for many of us. In verse 15, how did he break down this wall? It says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He broke down the wall by abolishing the law. And, and what he's referring to there, it's very clearly a reference to the Mosaic law. But now we have a problem because there's, an, there's another scripture that says that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Remember Matthew five seventeen, He says... Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, this is classic Bible study material. One verse says Christ didn't abolish the law. And another text says he does abolish the law. Okay, which one is it? Hmm? Christian, you believe the Bible is without error? Show me. <laughs> So which one is it? And here's my solution. Okay, so um, I might be wrong on this, but this is, as I study this, and I think this is a, a compelling answer, is when in Matthew, the context there is speaking about the moral law. Because if you think of the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not... So what is he doing? He's taking the Ten Commandments, which are the moral law of God, that is eternal, that remains for all peoples of all times, and he says, listen, you think you know this law, but let me show you the true heart of this law. This, this law goes deeper. You think you are okay if you just haven't committed adultery. But I say to you, if you just look at a woman, you've committed adultery in your hearts. And so the moral law, remember the Ten Commandments are summarized by the great commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to look like look at what that means look at the ten commandments don't have any other gods before him don't make idols don't take his name in vain that's to, uh, remember the sabbath day 
right? And honor your father, your mother. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. That's love. That's love in action. And so Jesus did not come to abolish that. Those laws are still intact. In fact, Jesus even elevates it. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I've loved you. You see, in the Old Testament it was, as your neighbor, like yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, love one another as I loved you. How did he love us? Just as himself? No, he died. That's our love is now greater, right? So that's the point. I think when it says in Matthew, I have not come to abolish but to fulfill, he's not thinking of the entire Mosaic law, but really this, the, the moral law. But, when it, but he did come to abolish the temporary ceremonial laws of, of, of Moses' law, the sacrificial system, the feasts, the laws concerning clean and unclean foods, all of that. Paul says in Colossians 2, they were a shadow. They were just a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. They were pointing to Christ. And when he came, that law fell away. We no longer have to bring our sacrifices. We no longer have to keep specific feasts or specific seasons of rest. No, because all of them were pointing to our true festival, our true rest, our true Messiah. The Passover, for example, now replaces the, the, uh, the Lord. Sorry, the Passover is now replaced by the Lord's Supper. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we think of our lamb that was slain. Pentecost was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit was poured out on those first Christians. And I think it was, and it was exactly, think about it, it was exactly the ceremonial laws that was the wall of hostility. It was because they were clean and unclean, in and out, and all these endless lists of foods. of Because even in the Old Covenant, when you were unclean, as a Jew, you had to wait seven days outside of the camp. Think of how, how high your, your view of unclean and clean is. Seven days fasting of social interaction. You're out. Now think of the Gentiles. They live in that. They, they're not just seven days outside and then they can come back. They are pig eating, right? Living unclean, filthy Gentiles. In a permanent state of uncleanness. Like they, they, you can't even come near them. Nothing was as unclean as a Gentile. But again, now Christ came. He abolished the law. The law was the temporary instructor, the temporary guardian until Jesus came and he introduced us to him. There are no longer all these rules that separate us from the clean and the unclean. No, we are a new people. Which leads us to the fourth point. Jesus brought peace by making a new man, one new man. This is a very strong emphasis of this text that Paul says he is making a new people of God. It's very clear. Look at verse 14, 15, and 16. It says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. Look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Look at verse 16. Might reconcile us both to God in one body. Do you see? One, one, one. The two were two peoples and now they are one people. It's like a new, new group altogether. Some commentators like to say Jews are one race. If Jews is one race and a Gentile is another race, Christians are a third race. We're a whole different race. We're a whole different group of people. So if a Gentile comes to Christ, he's not just joining a Jewish church. Or when a Jew becomes a Christian, he's not just extending his Jewishness. Rather, Christ is making a poema, a new creation. He is making a whole new thing. Jews and Gentiles are not just God's people. They are now one body. They share a common Savior, a common Father, and they are saved by the same means. Paul said it like this, Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So to put it bluntly, beloved, if you think of yourself as a Christian, there's no such thing as a black Christian or a white Christian or an Asian Christian or American Christian. There's just Christians. That's what they are, right? Now, that doesn't mean our backgrounds vanish. So we still have our cultures. And, but our new identity is first. We are Christian. That's our new identity. 
To give you an illustration of this, there was a bus driver who was driving a green bus and he was tired of the constant fighting in his bus between the black and the white people. And he came up with a brilliant plan. He says, he asked a white person, what color are you? He says, I'm white. like, no, you're not white. You're green. You're on the green bus. And as long as you're on the green bus, you are green. And he looked at the black person and says, what color are you? He says, I'm black. He's like, no, you're green. If you're on the green bus, you're green. He thought, well, now there's only green people. Right? That solves the problem. Until one time, one bright spark at the back of the bus says, all the light green on this side and all the dark green on that side. <laughs> right? Now, what is that? He had the right idea. The only way to bring lasting peace is to have one identity. That's the only way. But the bus driver cannot change hearts. The bus driver cannot take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. Only Jesus can. That's why only in Christ there's peace. It's not going to be the new policy. It's not going to be a new government. It's not going to be these things. External things will not bring peace. It will not. Only Christ can bring peace. True peace. True peace in the sense of we're not just tolerating one another, but we love one another. Right? We all know that kind of peace like, okay, there's peace, but don't, don't come near me. Again, that's a superficial peace. That's, a, that's not true peace. Peace is when we can carry one another's burdens that I'll be willing to die for you as my brother and my sister because we love the same Savior. You are my family. Again, I just want to clarify this. This doesn't mean that our backgrounds or our male or femaleness have been vanished or anything like that. Even that I think that God hasn't completely forsaken the Jewish people. Because I think in Romans 11, it's clear that God still has that future plan for, for Jews, ethnic Jews, e ethnic Israel to be saved. So I think that is true. But, but still, save them to Christ, right? Christ is the only way. So let me also just say this, is that if a Jew who does not believe in Jesus die, that Jew is going to hell. Remember what Paul said in Romans 9. He says, I cry, I weeping for my brethren, for my, my kinsmen according to the flesh, for they are lost. Right? So even though they have all these privileges, all the Old Testament, Old Covenant privileges, if they reject Christ, they're in the same boat as the Gentiles. No hope and without God in the world. Here's the fifth way and the last way Christ brought peace. And Paul mentioned it first for emphasis, and I want to mention it last for emphasis, okay, is verse 14. Verse 14. Notice this, that Christ alone is our peace. It says, for he himself is our peace. What's the difference between a wonderful ruler giving peace and Christ? Christ doesn't just give peace. He is our peace. He is the peace between us. Do you see how serious it is if you do not, are not willing to live in peace with your brother and sister? Who are you denying? You're not just denying another Christian. You're denying Christ. Christ says, if you do not forgive your brother and sister, I will cast you in, in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's how serious our unity is. Because He Himself is our peace. We are united to Him. And so we cannot lop off part of the body. We can't say, I don't want that part. No, it's part of the same body because we are united to Christ and therefore united to one another. We are the new man because we are the body of whom? Body of Christ. I like to say this. I've mentioned this before. It's like, imagine a man that wants to um, woo a woman and he says to her, you know what? I love your face, but I hate your body. You know, would that ever work? Would that ever work? <laughs> like never, right? But that's how many people treat, treat Jesus and his bride. Love the face, hate the body. Jesus says, sorry, that's part of me. <laughs> so it's either all of me or none of me. This was his message. Look at verse 17. He says, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. So if Christ is peace and he preaches peace, what is his message? 
I am. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am. His sermon was about himself. Imagine I'm standing up and preaching a sermon about me. Like, that pastor is narcissistic, <laughs> proud. Right? But Christ, why is it not wrong for Christ? Because he is God. He's God in the flesh. He says, listen, I am truly your only hope. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he preaches peace to those who are far off. Amen. To those wicked sinners out there. But did you see what he says as well? To whom he, does he also preach peace to? He also preaches peace to those who were near. He preached peace to the Jews. That they, because they also need to be reconciled to God. Remember Romans 3 makes it so clear. It says, we are both Jew-Gentile under sin. So he is our peace. He preaches peace. And what else would you expect from the Prince of Peace? That's who he is. Think about it. How far has this message gone? South Africa, Pochestrum. To you. Isn't that, I just find that so amazing. We could have lived in any other era where we would have never heard about the gospel, never heard of Christ, and we would have gone to hell. And yet here we are. Yet here we, you are, you hearing the words of peace, of Christ, of the Messiah. How blessed are you? How blessed are you? This is the work of Christ, beloved. This is His work. It's part of His work. It, you can't separate His work of reconciling, reconciling us from Him reconciling us to God. In this sense, you could say church is that heavenly preview, right? Every Sunday. Love, let me close with three brief applications. Just three brief applications for us to think about. Number one, the question I started with, who is your people? I want you to think about that question. What is the first thing that comes into your mind and your heart when I say, who is your people? If someone puts a gun into your head, it's like, who are your people? What's the first thing that pops up? I pray and I hope that it will be one another. It will be us, the church. Again, brothers and sisters, we're sinful, we're sinners. There can be racism in a Christian. That's a reality. But make Christ kill that. It's gonna, he's going to discipline you if you're a racist. You're not going to go far, okay? Unless you're an unbeliever. Then you can go very far. But who is your people? And I hope you can say that, that this is us. Secondly, love it, second application is this. The gospel shines in belonging to a local church. The gospel shines the brightest when we belong in a local church where we love people that are not like you and me. It takes supernatural love to love people that are not like you. But listen, it doesn't take supernatural love to love a if you're a student and you're in a student church. That's very natural. You don't need God's spirit to love people that are exactly like you. Do you understand? If you're just a young person mixing with young people and that's your crowd and that's your, your, your group, now, nothing against best friends and things like that. I'm not, not arguing against that. But I'm saying like we lose the power of the gospel if that's the only kind of Christians we love. But imagine this. Imagine a church where, where really there are these Jew, Gentile, different cultures, different tongues coming together and, we, and we, we're wrapping our arms around one another and say, brother, sister, Imagine people look at that and say, that's not normal. Imagine different generations. Old people calling younger, younger believers their daughters, their sons. Or we're calling them our fathers, our mothers, our spiritual fathers. Imagine how beautiful that looks. Remember, Jesus says, by this people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when people look at this, when people look at this community that's not supposed to work, it's not supposed to work, and it works, God exists. There is a God in the heaven and His love is displayed. Beloved, we should long for this. We should long for our church to consist of not just students, of not just young people. We should long for this church to, be, to have different peoples, different ages, when there's an older couple coming in, they say, I feel so out of place because I'm the only old person. It's like, praise God, we need you. Come. Because who's praying for the pastor? Not the young people. <laughs> the old people that are retired, they're praying for their pastor. So please pray for me. <laughs> okay, please pray for me.
Beloved, that shows the beauty of the gospel by belonging to a local church. It's difficult. Is it easy? No, it's not. But commit. And lastly, here's the last application is, if Christ himself is our peace, then you may know where churches are not at peace with one another, where there aren't peace between us, where's the problem? We're not focusing on Christ. We have missed him. We have either missed him in the sermons, in the pulpit, we are missing him in the week by being more entertained by conspiracy theories or podcasts or teaching that teaches us about all you know, just interesting things but doesn't belong to Christ. So, beloved, don't, don't long for, in, for entertaining music that just focuses on you and you and who you are and how amazing you are. Folk, long for music that shows you the glory of Christ, that shows you Him. Long for that. Long to sing songs that exclaims His beauty, His, His glory. So, dear church, are we Christ-centered? Is He the Son and are we the planets that are revolving around Him? Do we freely forgive others as God has forgiven us in Christ? If Christ is at the center of our church and of your life, then let our peace between us be the proof of that. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that you have not just reconciled us vertically to you, but you've also brought true peace, true peace between two enemies, the Jew and the Gentile. And you've made us one. You've made us one body, one church. Oh Lord, we confess that there's still that indwelling sin in us that is proud, that is kicking against the goads, that doesn't want to submit to your law and your beauty and your glory. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for any, any hint of racism in our hearts. Forgive us for ever thinking that our people is mainly our culture or our language or something like that. Lord, help us to think biblically, to truly rejoice in this poema, this workmanship, this new creation that you are busy making within your church. And Lord, we confess that the church is difficult, Lord. We... When we are part of your church, we do experience disappointment and hurt and even sin against one another. Oh Lord, but that's why you command us to forgive. Lord, please, please Lord, give us that gracious heart. May we be quick to forgive and slow to be angry. May we give the devil no opportunity in our anger or in our bitterness. Lord, I pray that our body, that this church, that Heritage Baptist Church might become one church in, in every essence of it, Lord. That we would truly reflect the beauty of your unity. For, for you, Lord, are one God in three persons and we worship you for that. So, Lord, please bless us and help us to apply this even practically in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.